All right, gang. I'm going to kind of call us to order because I'm going to give us a bigger break in the middle than I usually do. Special welcome to all the new faces that we have. And, uh, and for all those listening yet who will, be, uh, who, who will catch this later, we're glad you're still part of it too. Do make sure when you have questions that you speak up because uh, I am recording and, and it'll make better sense for the people uh, who listen to this on the podcast to, um, to understand what's going on. Let's begin with prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Oh God, you have given human beings the inestimable privilege, infinite worth of sharing in the saving work of your Son as we celebrate the Holy and Divine Liturgy. Give us the grace as we probe the words of sacred scripture and simmer in a holy tradition to draw back the veil, to catch a glimpse of you in your fullness, and to recognize the high calling to which you draw us each and every day. Help us as we depart from this place to celebrate that liturgy more worthily and well, and help us to be transformed by the mysteries which we celebrate through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. So, because we have new people and because people are in and out, sort of very brief recap from last week. The series that we're doing right now is on the Book of Revelation and the Mass. This is, full disclosure, the least Revelation-heavy uh, uh, day in the course, as it were. Uh, this, is, this is mostly about the Mass um, and about sort of the way that it's structured and how it came to be. Um, but it's, it's really, really important um, because that's going to help. This is going to give us the lens by which we look at the book. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing this, I will admit, in a somewhat counterintuitive way. I'm not entirely sure it'll work, but we'll, we'll see together. Um, uh, uh, as, as, as I was putting this together, um, the way that I framed it helped me to understand it better. And so hopefully it helps, it helps you as well. I have deliberately called this drawing back the veil. And you heard me reference that in the prayer as well. That's because, as we have said the last couple of weeks, that the word revelation or apocalypsis literally means to draw back a veil or to unveil. So it's, it's, it's sort of the ta moment, right? In the liturgy, this is what happens when the priest or the deacon lifts the veil over the chalice. This is why, uh, even though chalice veils disappeared for several decades, many of us have tried to bring them back because it's very hard to talk about this if you're not doing the gesture anymore to understand what's going on. Um, and because veils still serve an important part uh, in, in sort of our social lives. Brides still wear veils, even though their grooms have clearly seen them before, right? Um, and, we, and, and we do still cover things and have sort of ta moments elsewhere. And so it's important to understand why that's happening in the liturgy. Um, it's also significant, right, that um, it shows the distance that contemporary culture can go. So the word apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic now is simply synonymous with the end of the world. And my claim, and I'm going to say the, 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 the strong claim of the tradition here is, that's not what that word means. <laughs> not just etymologically, that's literally not what the book that we're concerned with is about. Um, this is ultimately about drawing back the veil so that we can catch a glimpse of God. Caveat ahead of time here. So like I said, the, uh, the, the, especially the first half of this is going to look you're going to wonder what the hell I'm doing, which is entirely reasonable. I wondered it too as I was putting the thing together. But um, <clears throat> this is the, we're going to first look at Protestants and the way Protestant liturgies developed. 
as a, a point of sort of comparison and contrast, okay? This is in no way a jab at anyone. Um, uh, this, this is not like an attack on Protestants, but I think it's important to see how these traditions develop differently so that we can understand why we look the way that we do. So what I want us to do to begin is hop in the Wayback Machine to 1525. Oops, too far, 1525. So um, Martin Luther, remember this guy? Yeah. Okay. Um, what's, uh, what's his great claim to fame? What's the, the famous thing he did? 95 right, so he pounds a thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. Um, this event, largely uh, mistaken, overblown, misunderstood. So the door of the cathedral was a bulletin board. So this is not a rallying cry for a reformation yet. That happened about six or seven years later. Um, this was a, a proposal for public debate. And the 95 theses were um, like debate prompts, like you'd have in a high school debate tournament or something. Resolved, indulgences, good idea, bad idea. That's, that's what he was doing. Over time, Luther's thought develops, and he winds up in a very different place than the Catholic Church does. But, uh, but it doesn't start there. And it's important to see kind of where he begins and how things shift to understand why the two traditions wind up diverging. Luther's great contribution to the liturgy comes between 1523 and 1526, in what's called the Deutschmesse. Any guesses about what that means? German, German mass, right, yeah, exactly. So, so uh, as the name itself suggests, this is Luther's first attempt to put the liturgy, to put the mass, into the vernacular of the people. Um, it takes place over the course of these three years because he was basically, he wasn't imprisoned in the sense that he was like being held hostile in a tower or something. But he kind of accidentally started a war when he started the Reformation. And so as a result, the German princes kind of divided themselves up. And he was basically stuck in this one town and was given the job by uh, the prince archbishop to do this thing. And this is what he did. So he, he rewrites the mass. He initially reorganizes the mass in Latin and then kind of back translates it into German and, um, and sets it up separately. So here are the things that Luther contributes to, to, to the thing. The purpose of the Mass, and he writes this at the, at the very top of the text. This does not exist in any Latin or Greek or ancient text. The purpose of the Mass is to hear the word proclaimed. Now, last week when we talked about the, the Bible in general and the book of Revelations, um, we talked about how the Bible was really designed for public proclamation. So he is drawing on a real tradition here, but he's, he's making a stronger claim than the tradition has historically made or people in the tradition have historically made. This is the first time in history that the mass is really conceived of as a didactic exercise, as a teaching exercise, right? This is important because it's the frame that most of us still use today. Well, if I don't understand it, why are we doing it? Uh, there are a lot of reasons to do things you don't understand. Be in a relationship 10 minutes. <laughs> you can be right or you can be in a relationship, right? So, 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 so this is the first sort of divergence from the tradition. We might decide we like it or not, but this is the first kind of real shift. He employs a wide use of the vernacular. The Deutschmesse was not entirely in German. There were still parts that were in Latin. And most people, uh, even most uh, peasants in Germany who weren't especially literate at the time, certainly knew bigger chunks of Latin than most of us do. They would have been able to sing or recite 
the Sanctus and the Gloria and the main parts of the Mass in a way that most of us would probably have to look at a sheet for or something. So he, he maintained a lot of that in, in, uh, in, in the Latin, but then kept other parts that he knew that people wouldn't know or understand in the vernacular. He reorganized and literally like reordered the parts of the Mass. So he didn't get rid of very much. There are bits he did, but he didn't like take wholesale chunks out. That happens later. But he took the bits that were there and put them together in a different order that he thought better reflected this purpose of public proclamation, that better articulated the word. Hi, come on. No, you're fine. Oh, we're we're then... We got chairs in the back. You're good. We've got some over there. Um, uh, the biggest change, and a very, very significant one, the, the most significant thing probably he did, was he split the consecration into two distinct moments, which we'll see here in just a sec. Um, and, and this really, it didn't go over very well. Like, people kind of freaked out, and, they, and like the, the prince made him go back and change it because they didn't like it. Um, but, he, but he did it because he was trying to maintain the sense of the liturgy as sort of public proclamation. We might even say, and I do not mean this in a demeaning way at all, sort of play-acting or reenactment, right? So uh, I get this question a fair bit, actually, even today. It was very common, because uh, this was a, a, a view that became popular in Catholic circles in the 70s and 80s, um, to think about the Mass as sort of play-acting the Last Supper. And so uh, in, 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 in priest circles, this often gets referred to as the Lazy Susan Mass, because the priest will do this, take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body, right? That's not in any rubric. It's not part of any ritual tradition, Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox ever. That's just something some guy decided to do because he thought it would be really engaging. But it misunderstands who the words are directed to because that whole prayer isn't, uh, the priest isn't talking to you. He's talking to God. Father, all-powerful and ever-living God, not wonderful people before whom I am now going to conduct. That's, okay, so, 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 so it's a very, very different kind of an action. But if, if what you think you're doing is putting on a kind of religious play in order to, to stir up devotion in people, well, then that kind of an action makes sense. Um, and the sole criterion that he used, again, what he puts in the margin notes, we've got, like we've got it in his hand, the sole criterion that he used to measure against all the rest of the liturgy was justification by faith. For Luther, this is the whole gospel. We're justified by faith alone, and that justification is what leads to sanctification and all the rest. But that's got to happen first. And so anything that looks like the sacrament is itself sanctifying us, or God is doing something in the course of the worship service or something like that, that had to be minimized or taken away because it would, in his view, communicate something untrue. I want you to see here, just because I think the outline form, maybe, there we go, um, helps articulate this a little bit better. And because the... Maybe. Hold on. Sorry. Of course, never working the way one wants, right? Okay, that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> apologies. Um, uh, but so, but basically, uh, he 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 took all the bits that we're familiar with and reorganized them to better fit this sort of model. All right, 1523 to 1526. Fast forward 40 years, or 14 years, 14, 15 years. John Calvin. Okay, Luther's in Germany. Calvin's in what's now Switzerland, Geneva. Important bit here, okay? So Luther 
was was trained as a Catholic priest, and his whole formation was Catholic. Uh, Calvin was not. Um, he was trained as a lawyer, uh, and his theological background was not super. And, and, and that becomes rather clear as, as we see how what his reforms wind up looking like. So um, here, though, we begin to see the, the, um, the germ or the, the, the seed of the ways that we tend to talk about liturgy now. So he's the first one to utilize these specific words to talk about this, and that's a typo. That's all right. Liturgy of word versus liturgy of table or Eucharist. Um, he introduces this notion of a call to worship. We're pretty familiar with this now. Most Protestant communities use this language. A lot of Catholic communities do sort of to start off, but there's, there's something that happens at the beginning to call people together. So even if we're already seated and in our pews and ready, all right, now, now we're going to start, guys. That's the move, right? Um, he introduces a confession of sins to the beginning, which is a bit of an innovation. We'll talk about that. Then a, a prayer for pardon that would be done by the minister. Singing of a psalm or psalms. A prayer for illumination or understanding around the scriptures. So like before we read the scripture, God help us to understand the scripture. The scripture reading, which Calvin does something different than, uh, than, than Luther had done. Luther, again, formed very much in this Catholic tradition. Calvin trying to do something altogether new. So Calvin introduces the idea that maybe you wouldn't have a regular cycle and go through stuff on a kind of calendrical system. Most Calvinist ch uh, churches today do follow a lectionary cycle like we do, but that wasn't the case at the time. Um, and so like, instead of having an epistle and a psalm and a gospel, you would just have a chapter from the book of Ruth. And then the preacher's job in the sermon is to just exposit whatever he's just read, okay? Um, interestingly, sort of reverse clericalism here, so while, uh, while the, the, the classical liturgy has always divided up these parts amongst different people, so that the priest would only read the readings if there was nobody else there to read them, um, Calvin sort of had the minister as the, the guy. So he'd both do the reading and read the sermon. After the sermon, there'd be a collection of the offering, so what we would think of as collection, like with a basket or, or plate, the intercessions he introduces, Luther didn't have intercessions the way we think of them now. Now, Calvin didn't invent these. He took them from the old Roman liturgy, but, um, but he, 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 he puts them in the place where we're more familiar with now. A singing of the creed. Um, this is footnote, but uh, the creed historically has ordinarily been sung. The experience that most of us have where we recite it together is not, has not been most of the church's experience. Um, uh, there have been attempts to try and kind of restore that. It just doesn't work very well in English. In English, especially, we don't we don't we, like we don't sing the oaths we take in court, and we don't sing the vows we make at weddings. And so, it, like it, it seems to strike English speakers as weird to do this. Calvin, of course, was doing this in French, but it's the same kind of idea. Um, the big idea here, though, is that the people sing the creed while the bread and the wine are being prepared, um, and he he deliberately wanted to break up the collection. So the offerings of the people from whatever's going on on the altar. He didn't want an association between what the people were doing and what was happening at the altar because he didn't want them to think that what was going on at the altar was an offering or a sacrifice. Instead, the language was wholly that of gift. So God gives this to us as opposed to us doing anything with God. Hold on to that in the back of your head because it'll be important. 
The prayer that sort of makes Eucharist was very, very pared down. Luther used a modified version of what we use. Calvin literally just cut the bits out of the New Testament and had, had us say Jesus' words and then would distribute communion, basically. So words of institution, those are the, this is my body, this is my blood. An exhortation to the people who are going to receive communion. Um, it's sometimes, uh, sometimes Catholics get this wrong. So it's true that most of the, the churches of the Reformation, um, for most of their history, have not done communion as often as we do, and certainly that they have a lower, lower theology of the sacrament than we do. But uh, it's not the case that they didn't take it seriously. And in fact, for most of the Reformers, the reason for less frequent communion was because they thought it would help highlight the importance of communion. Um, and so you'll see this as a feature of most of these liturgies. There's always some kind of direct, like, you be sure you know what you're doing, because you remember Annas and Sapphira? They died because they did this wrong, so don't do that. Those are two from the Acts of the Apostles, right? But so but there's, 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 there's typically some kind of a scare tactic right before communion. And then um, uh, Calvin introduces a you know, kind of formal way, a, a common prayer of thanksgiving afterwards because the emphasis is on gift. So what do you do when you get a gift? You say thank you. But see, the thank you now is for the gift. The gift isn't the thank you. Important, important distinction. And then the benediction. Both Luther and, and you can't see it because of the way that the, the thing went. Both Luther and Calvin were really uh, uncomfortable with, at least at the beginning, Luther shifts back and forth a bit, but with um, may almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They didn't like this because that, those two phrases together don't appear in the New Testament. The Trinitarian formula exists in the New Testament. That's, you know, the, 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 the commandment to baptize, right, is given directly that way. And certainly um, some form of may God bless you appears all over, but they're not together, and so they wouldn't do it. And so they both uh, impose the Aaronic blessing. Um, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with kindness and grant you peace as the ordinary blessing which would conclude the service. <clears throat> Again, footnote, right? That blessing historically given like this, mm -hmm. right? Which is where uh, Mr. Spock gets the Vulcan salute. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one that has probably influenced us most. Both in the sense that uh, it's, it ha it's had the greatest influence on English, English Christians, but also because they were our primary dialogue partners when we read the Mass in the 70s. So the Book of Common Prayer is the English prayer book, the, the prayer book of the Church of, uh, Church of England. Um, it goes through several different editions, but, but this frame is in place by 1552, and it's basically what carries through up until the 1970s when we decided to make our books match with each other. What do you notice about this one? Because it looks real different than the others. It's the very first thing that looks different. You ever been to a mass that started with the Our Father? No. no. no that's really weird, right? Why would they do that? Just guess. Of course, you can happen to be wrong. It's the prayer that Christ gave us. It is the prayer that Christ gave us. It's true. So, so one of the things that the Book of Common Prayer does, and this really comes to, um, 
typifying, I don't know, uh, uh, characterize the uh, Church of England and therefore Episcopalian worship here in the States is um, they wanted to, I, I don't want to say downplay, that's, the, that's that move that I was saying was not right before, but they wanted to highlight the importance of prayer apart from the Mass, of common prayer apart from the Mass. And so, so you know, there's a whole host of other prayers that priests are obliged to pray and religious are obliged to pray um, every day, uh, but that for all practical purposes, most lay people ha- had no contact with and a lot of people still don't, right? I'm thinking here especially of morning and evening prayer. So morning and evening prayer become kind of the, 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 the skeleton for the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and the Our Father is the way that those prayers always end. So the reason the Lord's Prayer is here at the beginning is because it's presuming that the people have already shown up for morning prayer. So it's, 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 it's smushing together two services. This is followed immediately by a prayer of preparation. Um, and this, the, the, you'll often hear this as um, people talk about it as like classically Anglican or classically Episcopalian. It's a very, very old Roman prayer. I still use it in the sacristy right before I come out. Almighty God, to whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we might both perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. It's the old prayer to begin Lent, so it's very fitting for right now. It's uh, probably fourth century, um, but it's been used, for obvious reasons, as a kind of preparatory prayer for a long, 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 long time. So it, it gets tucked at the front and is still an essential part of Anglican worship. Those Anglicans that have come into the Catholic Church in the last 10, 15 years, um, they, they've built it back into the Mass because it's, it's, it's that sort of essential. They introduce uh, the summary of the law. So a uh, very classical part of uh, Anglican liturgy is that at the very beginning of the communion service, the priest or the deacon will come out and, and he'll literally just read the Decalogue. He'll read the Ten Commandments. Or sometimes nowadays it'll be split. He'll read a part or shall read a part, and then the people will respond back. The idea, much like in the other one, you're trying to help prepare people and make sure that they, they've examined their conscience as well. Now things begin to become more familiar. So you, you have a collect or an opening prayer, an epistle. Um, replace the psalm with a hymn, the gospel, the creed, at this point still sung. Um, there's an offertory, which Luther importantly lacks, but this offertory has no prayers. So the bread and the wine are brought to the altar, they're lifted, but the priest says nothing. Hold on to that. Intercessions get tucked in here, followed by confession and absolution. Um, Anglicans and high church Lutherans have generally had a higher, uh, a more robust understanding of both confession and absolution than, uh, than reform-minded <coughs> Protestants do. And so this became really important for us after Vatican II. Uh, and had a lot to do with um, confession kind of falling off because people became convinced that what we think of as the penitential rite, which is basically this act, was confession. Um, and, so, and, and so when the priest says, you'll even see this, many of you do it, right? May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. People thought that was an absolution. It's actually called a little absolution. Um, that's not 
That's not what that is, and that sign of the cross isn't, it has never been in the rubrics there. There was a different prayer that we took out because it was confusing. But the reason this is important is because they definitely wanted people to be sure that they were disposed or prepared to receive communion. So you exhort them, you make sure they've examined themselves, you get them to admit their wrongdoing, and then the minister absolves them, forgives them, and that's what gives them the capacity to receive, as it were. And you do that right before starting kind of all the important stuff. The comfortable words are a distinctly Anglican thing. Basically, the priest recites, after you've just done all the I, I'm a terrible, wicked sinner thing, the priest says something like, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. So they want you to feel better after you meet. You know, like when mom gives ice cream after sending you your room. And then shifting into, again, more familiar bits. A preface. The prayer of humble access, we'll come back to, but it's, it's a prayer of preparation for communion. The prayer of consecration itself, the Anglicans retained something that looked a lot like our prayer, just with deliberately different words. <clears throat> communion. They moved the Gloria to the end. Um, and it's because they saw it as this kind of thanksgiving. And so, it, but it, it feels very disjointed for us because we're used to it at the beginning. But they moved the Gloria to the end. And then the blessing. They retained the more traditional blessing, and at least for a time, the sign of the cross. Okay, I'm, I'm going through this. I know <laughs> this seems all unrelated, but we're about to tie it back together. Um, why is this? Why does any of this matter? That's Father Schmemann. He's kind of my intellectual father. Um, uh, so, so this phrase, I know most of this is not in English, but I'll explain it, I promise. Lex orandi, lex, that's a spelling error, lex orandi, lex credendi, uh, autocorrect doesn't like me, and lex vivendi. Anybody know what lex means? Hmm? Lex means law. We'll talk about the lex talionis, which is eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, huh? Um, uh, so, so this is the law Orandi is praying. So the law of praying is the law of credendi, like creed. Believing is the law of living. Now the ises are implied here because Latin works like that. But the idea is basically this. People tend not to consciously pray contrary to what they believe. So like, I don't believe in Mars. The, Greek, or the Roman god of war. I, I don't think he ever existed. I've never prayed to Mars. It would be really weird for me to pray to Mars if I don't think he's real. Right? This is pretty flat-footed, obvious kind of stuff. So the idea is people's prayer shapes their belief, and their belief shapes their way of life. Not perfectly, not without error or sin or anything like that, but that for the most part, the way that we are, the, 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 the way that we interact with the holy shapes what we think about the holy and then the way that we live. That means that if you want to change what people believe, you need to change the way they pray. If you want to change what people believe, you don't just try and argue them into submission. You just change the way that they pray. And over time, as they start praying different, they'll start believing different. So think about it this way. 60 years ago, only about 
50% of people received communion in the Catholic Church on a regular basis. Now, virtually everybody does. So we've changed an important part of how most of us pray. How might that, I'm not making a value judgment here, this is just descriptive, how might that change what they believe? If you do something more often, so, so, so there's a, there's a, there's an element of import, either either that it becomes more important because it's more frequent, mm-hmm. or sort of contrary wise that familiarity breeds contempt, and so it becomes so familiar, it stops having the kind of import that you have. And this is sort of a dance that all ritual traditions do, or um, that it, it gets so ingrained in you like you don't know how not to do it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is often a real struggle, um, especially with younger people who kind of first discover that there's a whole tradition of not receiving communion when I'm in a bad place, they, like, they don't know how not to. I hear this in the confessional all the time, and I am 100% certain 500 years ago, no priest ever heard this. I'm 100% certain of it because we're pretty good at writing down what happens in the confessional to give other guys advice about what to say. Nobody ever wrote this before. <laughs> um, what they'll say is... I know I shouldn't receive communion, Father, but I don't know how not to. This has not been like a normal part of the tradition before. This is is kind of an aberration. We can talk about whether it's good or bad, but it's just just descriptively. It's not been a normal part of this. Likewise, this leads, uh, this ought to impact the way one lives, right? And so on a real practical level, um, you, you, your, uh, a child is brought in and, uh, and, and introduced to church in the, in the slow and ordinary way that people are that are raised in the faith. So they're first brought in, babe in arms, and then as they get older, toddler size, right, they're brought in, and we chase them to the genuflect, or the tabernacle. Why, why do we get on one knee, Mom? Well, because God lives in the gold box. Oh, okay, hi, God. And, um, and, then, and then slowly over time, like, I, I come to actually think God is in the gold box, and so I, and, and my gesture, like, forms this inside me, right? And then... Then these reverences, like, they affect not only what happens when I'm in church. And so many of us were taught that when you pass a church, you make the sign of the cross out of reverence for the sacrament. Well, that's, that's a vivendi thing, right? That, 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 that's a living bit. Uh, whether we attend Sunday Mass or not, kind of the place that Mass has in the family's life. Like, so do we go as a family? Uh, is there a meal attached? Is Sunday dinner still? All those kinds of bits. Feast days, right? So you have a cycle of fasting and feasting. And that that impacts not just in the church, but like at home, all of this tied. So the reason this is important is because when we go to look at our own liturgy today, the way that it's set up, there have been real changes in the way the liturgy is celebrated. And that has really affected the way many of us believe and the way many of us live. If you don't believe me, there's about two thirds fewer people in church today than there were 100 years ago. Something happens. I'm not saying everything we do is bad. That's not my claim. Those of you that are around know I'm, I'm pretty careful about this. That's not the claim. But it does mean we need to think about the things that we do, not because it might be right or wrong, but because it's impacting more than just the individual thing that we're seeing. Liturgia prima. Um, this, this is an idea. Um, it's really kind of just fleshing this out. Most of us learn the faith primarily by the doing of it and not by the teaching of it, right? Uh, You are, uh, quick math here, fewer than 5% 
of an ordinary Sunday congregation, right? So most of the people that attach themselves to this parish don't have anything like this experience. Or if they do, they only did from you know, the ages of 7 to 12 or something like that, right? So, so most of what people's experience of the faith is, is actually at the liturgy, which means the liturgy becomes the source for passing on the faith, both in terms of content, what's said, what you say, what I say, what I or the other preacher says during the sermon, but also uh, kind of the space in which it happens, right? Um, This is a thing I'm I'm, I'm always on with servers and lectors and, and other people that do stuff in the sanctuary with. People think, again, following kind of the Luther model, people think of this like a play, and that, um, and, and, and you know, if you've ever been in a play, there's blocking and, and arrangement, right? So there's a time that I come on stage, and I have actions that I have to do and words that I have to say. So if, if I'm a lector, then I'm going to enter the sanctuary, and I need to bow to the altar, and then I'm going to turn around and face the people and read whatever's on the, on the page. But... Um, Watch people bow. Just next time you're at Mass, watch the different ways that people bow. Little people, big people, old people, young people. Look at how they bow. Some people, um, this is a very low, dignified sort of uh, thing. Other people, it's a very quick head bob. Some people don't even know which direction they're bowing. Or, <laughs> and, um, and, and what's strange about this is, this is the reason I say it's like a play. So they, they've got the pieces, but none of it fits together. So why do these gestures like genuflections and and bows matter? Well, because we're attaching personality to the elements in the sanctuary, right? So like when mom tells the little boy, God lives in the gold box, she's not being hyperbolic or something. What she's saying is Christ abides in the sacrament. The sacrament is reserved in the tabernacle. So we show respect to the sacrament by going down on one knee or by bowing our body. Okay. If you uh, saw Jesus walking down the street and you believe he's God, would you be inclined to be like, (laughs) (laughs) but that is precisely how many of us act most of the time. Now, I'm not saying all gestures need to look the same. I'm certainly not saying everybody needs to model me. That's not the idea. I really don't care about that. But I spent a lot of time in that sanctuary, and I have for a lot of years now. You can virtually see it in people's eyes when they mean it and when they don't. Communion is a great example of this. People think I'm, I'm simply down on communion in the hand. That's not true. There, I have concerns about the way that we do it sometimes, but that's not the idea. But there is a difference between the body of Christ, amen, and the person who looks terrified, there's something in their hand, and body of Christ, amen. <laughs> They're not the same thing. They're not the same gesture. And, 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 and it does tell not just me, but everybody around you about what's going on. You think that doesn't matter? Raise a child. Kids watch their parents. And if kids see parents not taking the stuff seriously, they will not take it seriously. If kids see their parents taking it seriously, they, when they're teenagers, they'll probably stop taking it seriously. But they at least know that it's important to mom and dad. Like they, 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 they note that stuff, right? And so all of us, collectively, in the assembly, we have an obligation to take our stuff seriously, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of the others around us. Liturgy versus liturgia. So this is really just the Greek version of this word. But the reason I'm putting it up there like that, the reason I'm making the distinction that I am, is because 
when I say the word liturgy, what do you think of? That is a mark that needs to go. The mass, right? So, so the word liturgy, you've probably heard this said by somebody at some point. Son of a gun, I am not batting a thousand today. Somebody has almost certainly said to you, um, liturgy means the work of the people. Um, and that is almost true. Uh, the, the better translation is public work. So the word liturgy at the time of the writing of the New Testament for Greek speakers and for Romans literally means aqueducts, roads, aqueducts, uh, plumbing, roads, um, uh, uh, armies. <laughs> but it, it, it means the public works department of the city of Des Moines. So we pay taxes to somebody who's in charge of us. They take our money and are supposed to provide us with stuff. That's the idea. The Greek translators of the Old Testament, so the guys who translated the, the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, we talked about them last week, remember? They walked the 70 guys in the room and that didn't happen, all that business, right? Yeah. So those guys chose this word in Greek to talk about the services in the temple. There were probably a lot of reasons for that. We don't know all of them because they didn't tell us, right? But, um, but, but the most likely explanation here, right, is the temple functioned a lot like a government that way. You paid a tax in the form of the offerings that you made to the priest in the temple. Thank you. Um, uh, she's, she's working when she's not working. <laughs> um, uh, and then they performed a service on your behalf. But it wasn't simply, and this is important, um, I, I worked a road crew uh, two summers in college, which was important because the road that I worked on is 151. And I would drive it from here to Dubuque to go back and forth to school. After having worked that road crew, I have a connection to Highway 151 that I don't to any other road. <laughs> like I shared in the making of that road. And so when I drive up to Dubuque to this day, I, I, I can look by mile markers. You know? Remember when Jose punched Johnny over there? <laughs> There's... The, the, the connection is both vicarious, somebody doing something on behalf of us or for our sake, but in which we genuinely share. And that's, we think, the reason that the, the, the Greek translators of the Old Testament use this to talk about temple worship. By the time of the New Testament, it's the normal way to talk about worship. And so they naturally use this. But it only really gets used in the New Testament. There's, there's two places. It's all over the book of Revelation, which is why we're talking about this. It's, yeah, I think it's used like 60 times. Um, but it's, 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 it's the word that's used to describe this heavenly worship. You'll even see, like in the chapter headings as you go through, the heavenly liturgy. Like it'll be, it'll be written that way in your Bibles. That's on purpose. That's deliberate. The only other place it's used is, uh, is in connection, uh, the only place the word sacrament's used in the New Testament to marriage. So uh, the fifth chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, has that passage that nobody likes to read anymore, right? 
wives be submissive to your husbands? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he goes on for about six or seven verses there, just kind of riffing on his impression of marital relationships, which, to be fair here, Paul's a celibate like me, so maybe he didn't get all that. His experience might be different than yours. But then he says, this is a great mystery, magnum mysterium. And that word mysterium is what comes into English as sacrament, or Latin as sacrament. So in a funny sort of way, this made Luther really crazy. Like he got really, really mad about this because um, he didn't realize it until after he translated the Bible into German and then he got mad. Um, marriage is the only thing called the sacrament in the New Testament. Baptism is not called the sacrament. Communion's not called the sacrament. Uh, orders or ministry isn't called the sacrament. The only thing called the sacrament in the New Testament is marriage. And the reason it made Luther so crazy was because the strong claim of the reformers was that there were only two sacraments, baptism and communion, and the other five things uh, were like sacraments by analogy or something. Well, one of them was the only thing that's called the sacrament in the book. And so this is part of the reason, right, the stuff from last week, taking the text of the scripture without context and trying to use sort of our categories now to make sense of it will always yield a bad result. You'll have a mistake like this. Um, it's not the biggest mistake in the world. It's not like, it's not like everything else is useless, but, but this is important. Right. Why would liturgy then, something we do on behalf of another and that we somehow share in, why would that get used to talk about marriage? Most of you who are or have been married. Because we're creating a new human life. That's the purpose of marriage. Okay. So, 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 so when the couple come together and they make the new person, there's something being done on behalf of another, another that at least initially doesn't quite exist yet, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so that's true. How about between the husband and the wife themselves? Would you ever do things for each other? You I don't, I'm not married, but it looks like it. Yeah. <laughs> you give your life on behalf of the other. On behalf of the other, right? So you, at least ideally, you invest wholly in the other, and the other hopefully invests wholly in you, and then your whole lives wind up being sort of on behalf of and for the sake of the other. And yet, it doesn't stop being yours. Like, it, it is still, importantly, your work. Try and do that with no act of the will at all. <laughs> it's not going to work, right? So, so, so this winds up being, marriage winds up being the paradigm to understand all the rest of this. And that's probably the most important thing I have to say today. The, the liturgy divorced from the notion of marriage is unintelligible. And that's the message of the book of Revelation. That's why it's a wedding feast and not a bachelor party yeah. or even a, a, a religious celebration, right? He, the, the, John, in his vision, could have used any number of other festival kind of images to talk about what was going on, right? Could have, this, is like, this is like a Sabbath feast or, or this is like one of the temple festivals. So this is like, he didn't. He pointed to the most basic reality most of us ever know. This is the reason um, in our own day when the Catholics especially, but other Christians too, when we bang on the marriage thing and, and, and around the dangers of redefining marriage, it's not, this is, has far less to do with gaydom. It has far more to do with the fundamental way we understand human beings' relationship with God. And if marriage is the metaphor the Bible gives us 
to understand our relationship with God and you redefine what marriage is, you're going to have a very different understanding of your relationship with God. It would be like redefining what a triangle is and trying to build a pyramid. <laughs> I mean, you might have a building, but it's going to look very, very different than the building would have before. All right. That is a lot, and none of it has to do exactly with what we're, what, what, what we're here to do. But any questions about any and all that? Any questions about any and all that? Maybe it sounds nitpicky, but it isn't meant to be nitpicky. When you were on the slide with the Book of Common Prayers, one of the, it says Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. And um, so that word holy is, I'm thinking if that, if they don't believe this is a sacrifice, if they don't believe this is actually Christ, then how could, I'm not sure why the word holy, holy is attached. This is a really good question. So the English Reformation, uh, was a very different thing than the Reformation in Germany or in, uh, in kind of continental Europe. And the reason for it was um, there was a real appetite for the Reformation in Germany, which is why I said Luther kind of inadvertently started a war. Um, so like, there were a lot of people that when he started talking, went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was not the case in England. Uh, most of the English people just flat rejected the Reformation that was given them. And the Book of Common Prayer was really created as, as the way to unify what were very Catholic parts of the country and a few very small uh, Protestant parts of the country. Those words probably aren't even quite right, but that it'll, for our purposes, be easier to say. And so, so the English church retained a lot more of what we would think of as sort of Catholic practice. Um, uh, and as a result... <laughs> they're simply less consistent. Now today, Episcopalians really, this is a part of their like, uh, marketing campaign, right? Is we, you, it's not really that important that we're united in common belief, just so long as we can say the same prayers. And so if, if you can say this prayer without crossing your fingers, and I can say this prayer without crossing my fingers, <laughs> even if you mean a totally different thing than I do, that's okay. I was talking to a friend just day before yesterday uh, who... Uh, I was in grad school with, and she's kind of bounced back and forth denominationally, and she's recently started attending an Episcopal church, and it's a fairly low church, Episcopal church, and so, um, so they were doing, you know, communion with the little Dixie cup thing, and this really disturbed her, like she, she that was a bridge too far, um, and, and I said, well, you know, like, this is, if you want to be Episcopalian, this is, this is supposed to be the benefit, is like, you can disagree with your rector's decision to distribute communion that way, and it's totally fine. Um, what, the, what, what the English Reformation tried to do was hold together what were basically people with totally different opinions. Um, the Puritans, who are associated you know, with the founding of, of this country, um, were basically people who left the Church of England because it was too Catholic. This is a total footnote and aside, but I think it's one of the most important events in U.S. history, probably Christian history. Um, Christmas was illegal for 12 years. <laughs> Say that again. The celebration of Christmas was illegal in what was to become this country. They were still the colonies, but in what was to become this country for 12 years, and people were murdered for celebrating, for singing Christmas carols. So the Puritans, like, we have this kind of national myth around the poor beleaguered Puritans with the funny hats and the buckles on their shoes, and they come and 
and, uh, and, and they're just trying to be nice to Indians or something, and, and, and apart from whatever racial badness is probably going on there, um, this, like, the Puritans were uh, pain. That's why they got thrown out of England. They, they, they were sort of fun-hating, uh, anti-sacramental, anti-materialists, right? So, so, but they were still, uh, uh, until they got sent to America, part of the English church. And so the Archbishop Cranmer here, who wrote the Book of Common Prayer and then was later burned as a heretic, that might be something to think about, um, uh, like by his own people, um, uh, he tried to create a form of prayer that would be amenable to everybody. It has not probably proven all that successful, but that was, that was the big idea. So the answer to your question, why Holy Communion? The Catholic side of the Church of England could say, no, this is holy because Christ instituted it. He is somehow or other present there, even if we're not going to try and describe why. The English Church would be more comfortable with the language of sacrifice, but they would deliberately not mean by it what we would come to mean. Um, and, uh, and, and it happens in the Church, amongst the ministers, like it's holy in that sense. Or it could just be holy because churchy things are holy, holy by proximity or something like that. Like we could believe very different things about what the words mean. Probably the headline on all this is words matter, which is why doing a deep dive on a particular text of scripture is so important because the individual words wind up mattering rather immensely. Other questions? Yeah, Mark. So um, with the sacrament, with marriage being this one sacrament, mm -hmm. is that like a callback to Genesis? Yes. Okay. With yeah, hundred percent. And the and, and the fathers of the church write about it that way. They call they call marriage the primordial sacrament. This is the big. This is not directly on this part, but it's worth saying. The real big fight that Luther picks during the Reformation, which today most Protestants, they're handful, but they're really very small in number. Um, just think, everybody realizes he, he overshot, he was wrong on this one, was that in order for a thing to be a sacrament, or the word that Protestants tend to use, at least at this time, is ordinance. So they, and notice what's happening here. We shift words just to signify we mean something slightly different. It's a boundary setting thing. So um, they start using the word ordinance rather than sacrament. And that, and that the, 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 the criterion here is dominical institution. So Jesus did it. Jesus set this up, right? And so the reason that uh, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, everybody says, um, says baptism and communion are the two sacraments is because they're the two things that unambiguously Jesus does. Jesus is baptized, and then he commands baptism. Jesus celebrates the Last Supper, and then he commands, do this in memory of me. And so, so, and then, of course, we see in the Acts that they, in fact, do both of those things rather rapidly. Um, Jesus, the, the trouble with this is, right, it's very hard, like, you're going to need some kind of criteria to determine what counts here. So, Jesus also says to the apostles, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. Well, does that count as confession or not? Luther actually says yes, and the Catholic Church says yes, 
The Anglican Church says yes, but the Reformed churches, the ones that are now Baptist, they say no. So you're, you're, you're now inserting some other kind of criterion to determine it. Jesus, uh, uh, in St. Mark's Gospel, right, sends uh, the 12 out and commands them to heal the sick and anoint them with oil. So it isn't only in, in the Epistle of St. James. Jesus sends them out with oil and tells them to anoint the sick with oil. So does that count as anointing of the sick? Well, we would certainly say yes, but uh, not everybody else does, right? The problem with marriage basically was the only marriage we see in the Gospels is Cana, exactly. Jesus doesn't celebrate the wedding at Cana. Like, he's not the rabbi. Also, rabbis didn't do weddings then, so that would be a dumb thing to think. But Luther probably didn't know that because the only Judaism that he knew was rabbinical Judaism the way that we have it now. But, but, but that was the, the, the rationale that was used at the time of the Reformation was because Jesus wasn't the priest at the wedding at Cana, he didn't, he didn't institute marriage. It would be really weird if he had in as much as that would mean that the nameless couple at Cana were the first people in history to be married. <laughs> and that's clearly not true. So what the fathers of the church say to your point, Mark, is they'll point back and say, no, marriage is the primordial sacrament. And Jesus did institute it in the garden. That because Christ is God, he was present there. And by, by issuing the command, be fruitful and multiply, he literally joined the first man and the first woman in marriage. They didn't pronounce vows. They didn't exchange rings, as far as we know. Um, but but that but the, there was a, a relationship established by God in the beginning. Um, there'd be a whole separate course kind of the history of marriage ritual and stuff, but, 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 but that's the big idea, and, and, and that's how that one fits in. All right. Yeah? The only thing, uh, on, I was a Presbyterian, and mm -hmm. communion was probably given once every three months, Yep. and uh, there were you know, silver trays, and mm -hmm. you, everyone's sitting down, and they just pass, and you take it, and, mm -hmm. and so is the bread first, and then I mean, actual pieces of yep. bread. Probably bread, yep. And that usually occurred about once every three months. So what we, so again, practice varies from place to place, but practice, this, I guess this is maybe the point that I was trying to, to do with this whole presentation is that um, we vary practice, symbolic practice, ritual practice, pardon me, double pardon me. We vary symbolic practice, we change ritual practice to try and communicate things because symbols communicate, right? Totally secular example. Um, all of the flag rituals with which we're most familiar so, like, the folding of the flag, the draping of the flag over the coffin uh, at a soldier's funeral, all that kind of thing. Um, those, George Washington would not have known what you were doing. Abraham Lincoln would only vaguely have known what you were doing. Like, these are later developments in American sort of patriotic piety. That doesn't mean they're illegitimate. So do not hear me critiquing it. That's not the idea. But, but, the, but those practices came into being as the nation's identity emerged, especially following the Civil War. Most of the flag practices developed in the period between the Civil War and World War I. Um, and, 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 and they, they, you know, we, like, contemporary Americans would largely say, this is in healthy continuity with the founding of the country, but they're just different practice. Why would you have to do that? Well, because people were clearly saying something else. So why does this happen in the wake of the Civil War? 
Well, because there are people saying this ain't a country no more. <laughs> like, so you have to do something to bolster national identity, right? And so, so, so you have this redolent symbol, the flag literally carried into battle. Um, and, and, and that symbol kind of takes on the personhood of the nation, right? So we salute the flag like it's a person. We treat the flag, it's in the, uni in the uniform uh, code of flag protocol or whatever, it actually says, the flag is to be treated with the personage of the President of the United States. So you're supposed to treat the flag with the same respect that you would treat a person. In, a, in an analogous way, do you hear this in snare quotes and whatever else, in the same kind of a way that we treat the Blessed Sacrament as though it's a person. Now, we, we would maintain the personage of that person is in fact actually there in a, in a more substantial way than, than the flag is. But you see how the variation in practice communicates something different. Okay. Well, if you're concerned that people have like overshot on Jesus in Holy Communion, what you're going to do to alter their prayer so that they don't have what you perceive as bad ideas is you're going to change the law of their prayer. So no more genuflections, because that's the kind of thing you would do to salute a God. But if God's not there, or is only kind of there, or is there along with something else, or is only there by analogy or symbol, you're not going to get the same emphasis, right? You're, you're going to alter it. If you want to really emphasize the meal piece, then you're going to make it as mealy as you can. So we're going to have like real super substantial bread. They have to kind of chew and gnaw and get it down, right? And... And, and, and then you're going to have crumbs all over the place. And so then the people that are worried about crumbs, Jesus is all over the place. What am I going to do? You see what's happening here? Right? So, so there are difference in emphases to try and highlight different articles of, of, of faith or belief. Your question about Holy Communion is very pertinent here, Pat. So there is in the, uh, in the Book of Common Prayer um, what, what has come to be known as the Black Rubric. Um, so rubrics are stage directions in, the, in prayer books. And rubrics are typically printed in red. So, so, so the, the text you say is in black and the text you do is in red, except this one, which was in black, which was a printer's error, but that's why it's called the black rubric. Um, it, uh, it commands kneeling for Holy Communion in the Church of England, which at the time, the other churches of the Reformation had all stopped doing because Catholics believed that the Blessed Sacrament was Holy Jesus and nothing else. And so they would kneel to receive, if they were physically capable, old people have always been an exception, but people without legs and all the things. Um, uh, and so, 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 so the, the Church of England retained this, uh, the, the use of kneeling. But the rubric says, let no one be confused. I can't do this but from memory, but it, substantially it says, let no one think that the reason for our kneeling here is an adoration of the sacrament itself, but rather out of respect for the minister who dispenses it. So that it put the emphasis on the minister rather than the sacrament. I don't like that. Ah, but if, you're, but if, if what you're trying to do is elevate the importance of the king and the, and the nobility, if, 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 if they're the ones that run the church now and not the pope, maybe you do want people kneeling before them, see? Now, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, impute bad motive. That's not, that's not the idea. But just to see how what look like otherwise little tweaks um, uh, often carry much more meaning uh, than, we, than we anticipate. Um, uh, another, another important example, and th this, is, this is a major part of why I wanted to, to say this, do all this, is most of us have had some vague experience of at least Protestant liturgies. Most of us have been to a Protestant funeral or wedding or something. Um, and 
in our day in the United States, mainline Protestants, so most Lutherans, Presbyterians, uh, Methodists certainly, um, uh, some Baptists, um, they're going to, there's a kind of a flattening. People look a lot alike, right? So there's going to be somebody up front who wears some clothes that are different than everybody else. There's usually, these days, a stole, so a scarfy thing that goes over the top. And, um, and there's a space that's going to be distinct from the rest of the space where, like, the holy stuff happens. Like, those elements are all kind of there. This was not the case in the 1500s. <laughs> it was not the case in the 16 or 1700s. It didn't become the case again in most uh, Protestant churches until the mid-1800s. So, so, so because they were in the middle of boundary setting, showing how they were and weren't like Catholics, and so they, they altered stuff to show they were doing something different. So one of the best examples here, it looks subtle, but it's a really, really significant um, point. So at Mass, the priest wears a big poncho, right? There's me with my bald head. <laughs> What's that poncho called? Chasuble. Okay. So the chasuble is, uh, is a kind of Romanized, uh, stylized Romanized version of the garment that the high priest wore into the temple. All the vestments that the priest wears are really drawn from Leviticus, but, but the chasuble specifically was the garment worn by the high priest on the Day of Atonement when the scapegoat was sacrificed and it this garment was associated as the garment of sacrifice. Priests only wear it during Mass. At least they're only supposed to. Some are kind of dopey and throw it on and they don't know what else to do. But they're only supposed to wear it during Mass because it's the garment of sacrifice. If your whole like, purpose in church is to insist that the Eucharist is not a sacrifice, what's the first thing you're going to do? Get rid of the clothes. Don't wear the thing that says sacrifice. So chasubles were forbidden, not only like in church law, it, it was illegal to wear a chasuble in Northern Ireland as late as 2004. And I know that because I was living there when the law got repealed. Did you hear that? It was illegal and they didn't come after Catholics because they knew we were doing a different thing. But if you were a real uh, Catholic-minded uh, Anglican living in Ireland and you decided to throw one of these things on, you could get thrown out of your church. You could actually get thrown in jail. Not in 1550, but in 2004. So now that's a very specific example, but you get the idea here, right? The, the, the clothes wind up indicating something. Um, uh, so um, classical Anglican kind of uh, clothing um, actually mimics academic stuff and hoods, like academic hoods are, are what they wind up wearing instead. Now this is, okay, I've been very, very careful to try and not offer critiques. I'm gonna offer a critique here. If you're concerned about hierarchy and clericalism and making some people out to be more important than other people, and so you, so you deliberately diminish difference between clergy and laity, is it going to help your cause to create like an elite intellectual class that have other clothes? Like that actually seems worse. At, le at least I only think I'm important because I think God did something to me. I don't actually think I'm important because I'm that smart. But, but, but they like institutionalized smartness as the value. Um, you know, if, you, if, if you got the best marks in Greek, then you, you, you could wear the fancy hood, right? And so 
so these so then what happened right was in the 1850s um, a guy called John Henry Newman who was an Episcopal priest started reading things in Greek again which nobody had done in England for a while and he's like oh mm, it looks like the Catholics might have had more of this right um, maybe we should look more Catholic and act more Catholic in the Church of England and so he did that for about 20 years and then eventually he said yeah this, this dog ain't gonna hunt and he became Catholic um, and so, so but, but, but Newman left this legacy in the Church of England. Newman's been called the father of Vatican II because he, what he did in the Church of England was Catholicized practice, which is why mainline Protestants in the States and in England look real Catholic. But like even 60 years ago, not so much the case. Nowadays, what has often happened is in both sides, so like in Catholic lands and in Protestant lands, uh, people that want to really shore up communal identity, the identity of the group, have deliberately resourced the parts of their tradition that are distinct to sort of show what it is we're doing that's different than the other guy. Um, and so the, probably sometimes that's good and probably sometimes it's bad, like realistically, right? But, but, but that's what's going on. And that's... That's why, okay, so what, is, what does any of this have to do with the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation is doing the same kind of work, but utilizing the worship of the Old Testament. So they're going to take the vestments from the Old Testament, the prayers from the Old Testament, the, I'm using this kind of in sneer quotes, but the sacramental rites of the Old Testament, the ritual practice of the Old Testament, to try and highlight who Jesus is. Why is there a lamb who appears slain on the throne and, and, and why are there priests offering him incense? And why is there a procession uh, singing Psalm 43? Because it came from the temple. So, he, so he's tying, John, the writer of Revelation, is tying what he sees happening in heaven with the worship that God commanded in the temple. The temple's gone now, almost certainly by the time he's writing. Where does it happen now? Where does that heavenly worship occur now if the temple's gone? At the Mass. At the Eucharist. All right. Pause for 10, and then I have something to kind of wrap us up and tee us for next week. Help yourself to Sylvia's... But I was losing a button, and, and my, my, my designated seamstress is going to take care of me. So don't tell the bishop. Um, <laughs> Uh, right after a long conversation about special clothes, and now I'm like in the most unspecial clothes. Um, oh, I just want to say thank you because whatever prayer you just shot up literally just worked. Thank God. That was kind though. So, Mark's good point, which is significant. So, I, was, I, I, I try and use the flag analogy here, especially because of the parish's connection right to, to the fort. And because we have so many vets and, and service folk that are here. Um, but Mark is, is, is precisely right. Uh, the, the, the flag doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, constitute the personage of the individual who's the office holder of the President of the United States. It's the nation itself, sort of personified in the object. Right. Um, and, and that is a very, very fair distinction. But what I want us to see is that in, in, uh, in worship and... Um, symbolic action, I don't, there's probably a better way to say that, um, we wind up personifying objects. 
we, we, we place personhood in objects to stand for something else, right? So this, this is like the whole principle of classical paganism, right? So nobody, I can't say nobody, virtually nobody, certainly nobody that ran the religions actually thought the statue of Zeus was Zeus. Like they understood that was marble, they carved it. So they weren't confused about that. But they put sort of the personhood of Zeus in the object. This is, this is also the principle that's behind, so we're talking about this in terms, like in positive terms of reverence. This is the same principle that's behind um, uh, a blasphemy or desacralizing things, right? So, so why do you trample on a flag? Well, it's not the cloth that you're trampling on. You're symbolically trampling on the country that you yeah. think is, okay. So, so, so that's the kind of move. The same thing's true in, 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 in religious circles, which is why uh, you, know, you, you have this kind of thing going. Um, uh, Monsignor used to tease me because of the Beretta, because of the hat. He's like, I remember the day we threw all those in the lake at the seminary. I, like, I get it, and it was a time and a lot of energy and whatever, but, like, I think that was a big mistake. Like, I, even if we think the hats are dumb, like, even if we think the hats were a bad idea, they should be treated with respect because of what they represented, right? Mm -hmm. And so, if it's not a slam on my senior, please don't hear that the wrong way, but, it, but, but, it, but, it, but it, I think it's representative of this, this kind of dynamic. Here's what I want us to look at before we go. This is really where, like, this was the whole point of the last hour. I want to introduce you to Mrs. Murphy. She's actually Mrs. McManus. That's my grandmother. <laughs> but Mrs. Murphy is a kind of a, a, um, an idea, right, that gets proposed in uh, ritual circles, people who study uh, ritual anthropology. And the idea is Mrs. Murphy is the non-specialist, okay? So I've got years of school and three or four languages to help me understand all this, right? Most people don't have that, and they shouldn't be expected to. In fact, it, the system wouldn't work right if you had to, right? So Mrs. Murphy is sort of the everyman or the everywoman. Uh, initially proposed, so what's, what's interesting about Mrs. Murphy is she's um, the invention not of a Roman Catholic scholar, but of a Russian Orthodox one uh, who had moved to the States. And it's just sort of like Mrs. McGillicuddy. Like, that's the idea. She's, she's this placeholder for, 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 for Jane Doe in the pew. But what he saw in sort of Mrs. Murphy, and he made her Irish on purpose because the Irish at a certain time at least were sort of typical of this. No professional training. So my grandma was a convert to the faith. The only formal instruction she had in the faith were the instructions that she had when coming into the church. So tea with Monsignor Pumpkin at three every Thursday or something, okay? Um, but she attended Mass faithfully every Sunday on Holy Day, barring illness or storm or something like that, but like, was genuinely faithful to, to mass attendance, kept the cycle of fasting and feasting as was customary in her place and at her time. So always would have given up stuff during Lent, always would have kept something on Friday, like she would all that kind of stuff, right? Um, because of this, developed her own personal devotional life. So she had a prayer life distinct from the church's common prayer, distinct from the liturgy, but, but, it, but it depended in large measure on the liturgy for its form and its shape. Um, came to know the faith more by experience than by instruction. That was that whole bit about, you know, learning, learning how to do stuff and then the why kind of comes, right? And then, and I'm using the sneer quotes here on purpose, but, you know, if, 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 if you were to ask her, and I did ask her these things because she died when I was 21, so I had at least some brains by that point. She would feel it or experience the faith more than sort of head knowledge. 
It's not that there was no knowledge. Grandma wasn't dumb. She was a nurse. Like she'd been to school, but she wasn't a, a theology expert. She wasn't a you know a, a church person like in a professional sense. So she knew the creed. She knew the substance of it. She could listen in uh, debates or something and maybe maybe contribute something. But she had no Greek or Latin or anything like that. She just was a normal normal lay person. And this is this is the important one. And this is what I was trying to hit with the flag stuff. Maybe overshot. She acted all the time as though it was real. She acted all the time as though the faith and the things of the faith were real, because from the time she made the commitment to enter the church and, and allowed herself to be baptized, she was presuming it was real. Didn't always feel real, real, any more than it does for anybody else, but she presumed it and she acted in accord with that <coughs> first act of the will. She acted consistently. Perfectly. This is not a claim like that, because this becomes a problem at the time of the Reformation. Well, what do you do with people that say one thing and do another? <laughs> like, are they really saved, or are they half saved, or backslide? What does all this mean, right? We, and hopefully, avoid all that. Like, we, this whole like once saved, always saved thing has just never been part of our language patrimony. We just never understood the gospel that way. But if what you do is you experience the faith consistently in this way then, may I borrow your, uh, mm -hmm. then reading something like the book of Revelation actually gets easier rather than harder because you don't need to be an expert in Greek. You don't need to have a degree in theology. You don't need, you probably don't even need to, know, need to know who wrote it to be able to read it. You simply read it in light of the faith handed on by the saints. And, and this, is, this is the goal, right? I, I can teach a course if you want, like we can do just a straight textual analysis of the book. I think that's going to be very, I find it very boring and I've got the degree. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I, like, I don't think that's very useful. But what I think is useful is that the faith, the, the technical language for this is the deposit of the faith or the substance of the faith. The faith is the measure against which all the other stuff is done. And that's where authentic reform comes from. So the reason I started with Luther's revisions was because Luther's the first one that tries to abstract a, the first one that we know of. I can't say no guy in his room ever did this, right? But the first person who was successful at trying to distill a principle out of a whole thing and then measure everything else up and against that principle. That's not the way that the church historically does reform. And whatever we might think of the reforms of the last 50, 60 years, that's not what happened after Vatican II. What happened after Vatican II was an attempt to say, there are internal inconsistencies. Like not, we're going to abstract a principle over here and then measure everything up against that. It's this thing doesn't match this thing. So on a real practical level, this would have affected virtually no lay people before, but I think it's, it shows you how dysfunctional things were. So... Uh, we're all familiar now with the Saturday evening anticipatory mass. This is a normal feature of, of English-speaking Catholic life. Um, it's not in much of the world. Most of Latin America has no Saturday night masses. <laughs> so like, that's why you don't see many Hispanics at our, at our Saturday night mass. But, that, but, but it's an ordinary part of our life. Right, where did that come from? Well, the church does have this tradition of vigils, where you keep like an all-night vigil before a big feast. And so at the time... And that's drawn from the Jewish tradition of a day beginning at sundown. Mm -hmm. So the Sabbath starts at sundown. 
Sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. Right here. So, um, so, so, so the idea was we're gonna create. We're, we're like we're gonna get people really invested in these uh, in, in 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 these vigils before the Blessed Sacrament, so that by the time they get to Sunday Mass, they're like real ready. And that, that didn't happen. Like for all intents and purposes, Saturday night Mass is a way to not go to Mass on Sunday. I'm not supposed to say that, but like we all know that's what's actually happening, right? And so. Um, so, so why did that? Why, why did they think to do this though? Well, because it wasn't just mass that was uh, anticipatory. The office or those, those those prayers that the priests and the religious have to say could be anticipated too. Except those 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 prayers, they're all tied to times of the day, and they're like tied to times of the day. Like it'll literally say things like, "We greet you in the dawn," or. Uh, Grant us a restful night and a peaceful death. But it was common, not occasionally, common, like in the 50s, to say your night prayers at 3 in the afternoon. Well, that doesn't make very much sense. <laughs> eventually enough people said, that doesn't make very much sense. Probably we should find a way to change the times, right? And then there were, some, there were, there, there were several very practical uh, elements, too. Um, the, uh, the, 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 right, uh, the thing that everybody always points to, right, is the RCIA or OCIA, the way that we receive adult converts. Um, and, uh, it was a weird feature of the way, uh, ritual worked before the council, but, um, at the baptism of a baby, um, uh, you only spoke to the baby. So, like, as though the parents, godparents are not there, you only spoke to the baby, who is... A baby. <laughs> and so she can't talk back, yeah. which is what the godparents were for. So the godparents took the voice part of the baby. Do you reject Satan? I do. And all his works? I do. And all his empty promises? Said, okay, this is kind of schizophrenic. Like, that's not exactly what's happening here, right? So, so, the, 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 so the, the desire for reform, on our side at least, came from internal inconsistencies that we're just making it hard to take this stuff seriously because it's like, well, if you really believe the stuff you're saying, law of, law of prayer, law of belief, like, you, this, you're, you're being too inconsistent. Like, we can't make sense of this anymore. And so, and, 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 and so we needed a shift. Now, fair questions about, like, each individual thing that happened. But what I want you to see as we move into the book of Revelation, and what I want you to think about is this. I want you to think about the role that the church's prayer has had in shaping your own private prayer, the way in which your private prayer interacts with the church's uh, liturgy. We're at the perfect time for this. We're about to enter into, into great lands. And uh, you know, our prayers should shift, like our personal prayers should shift during Lent, apart from just not saying the A word or something. Um, so, so, hallelujah. Um, uh, but like we should, like we should be paying attention to the way that our own personal prayer happens during periods of fasting and periods of feasting. Our prayer should change if it changes next week on Ash Wednesday and does so for the subsequent six weeks or so. It should then change even more come Easter, right? Um, and so if, if if we go kind of subdued, if things are muted a bit during Lent, then then our personal prayer should blow out during Easter, right? Um, if we uh, if 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 we're committing to more significant penances during uh, during Lent, then we should really make sure that our prayer becomes jubilant during Easter time. Um, if we're uh, you know if we're if, if we're fasting a lot during Lent, we need to make sure we're feasting 
during, uh, during the festival period. So I just want you to think about this. I know I gave you the homework assignment with, with the actual text of Revelation last week, and I apologize we didn't get to it, but I thought this was more important to TSR. If you read it, go back and read it again in light of this. And as you read, what John is writing and what he's seeing and what he starts writing to other people Have I seen this before? Have I heard this before? Have I prayed this book? Because there should be at least one part that you probably have all prayed, even in that little homework assignment I gave you. Have I prayed this before? And how has it impacted me? How has that changed me? All right? Good to start. I, I, I know this one seems like a one-off. I promise there's a payoff. Follow me through. It'll be worth it. Okay? <laughs> Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thank you very much. Yep. It is. Yep. Uh,